You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Well, it is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The last Sunday in November. Before you know it, it's December. That means 2018 is almost over. (laughs) It's coming, and it's coming quickly. It's Thanksgiving. That time of year when we are supposed to gather together with family and or friends and pause the football game just long enough to wipe the cranberry sauce out of our beards, hypothetically speaking, and actually be mindful of the nothing that we have on our own and the abundance of God's provision. Did you know that that's actually what Thanksgiving is supposed to be about? It's not really just about Greenberg. It's not. It's about being mindful of the nothing that we have on our own and the amazing provision that God and His glory and grace gives us. That's what Thanksgiving is supposed to be about. It was hundreds of years ago, despite all the other media attention for this, that, and the other, Thanksgiving is about being mindful of, recognizing the nothing that we have on our own and being thankful for the provision that God has given. But... Thanksgiving also frequently means the gathering together of family. Family. There's really no other context in which the doctrine of the sin nature is made more vivid and plain than the gathering together of extended family. Nothing quite raises your blood pressure like being together with family. My family had the opportunity to travel to the glorious Garden of Eden that is the Texas Panhandle. I walk in the door, my mom's first word, hand to God, she says, oh, you look old. You're 75, back up. And she goes, no, just look, oh, this is so terrible. I'm home. Family can kind of bring that out of a person, right? Family sort of helps us to realize, hey, there are all of these other people, and I'm sort of obligated to love them, but they're just so terribly, profoundly wrong, right? And by the way, I'm talking about your families, not mine. My family's perfect and precious. I'm saying your family, you get to experience these things. If they weren't all just so wrong. And then Thanksgiving can sometimes be a little bit frustrating because you look around and you go, you know what? Not only is my family crazy, and by the way, they think that about you, just so we're all on the same page. They think that you're the source of all crazy, and they're probably right. But then you look around and you see there's so much else that's broken and bad in the world. And it sort of has a tendency to stack and it compounds. And you look at all these crazy uh, things that are happening in our world, in our community, across the sea, all over the world. And you just go, man, there's so much brokenness, there's so much bad. And what's even worse is that there are all these people who self-assess, who claim to be Christians, who are doing things in the name of Jesus that are so totally opposite and backward and different from the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just go, oh, no, being a Christian is not about all this goofy political fundamentalism or this, that, or the other. I I don't even want to be identified with some of those folks. And you just go, it's all so broken. Man, and you kind of maybe after you're sitting back after your third helping of honey glazed ham, you start to think, gosh, there's, there's just so much bad. There's so much broken. There's just so much wrong. That's it. That's the thing. There's so much wrong. If people would just begin to see things the way I see them, if they would just line up and straighten out, 
then we would finally have accord. We would finally have peace. If people would just think the way I think, see the way I see, do what I do, then the world would be a better place. And that right there is the sound of hell. Where for all eternity, echoing down the corridors of hell will be that notion that everybody else is wrong and I am right and if everyone would just be like me, everything would be solved. Now this morning we're going to go to a passage that confronts that fundamental human sickness and infection that every single one of us have. We all have the default tendency to think we're right because we're me. My group is right because it's my group. And if everyone else would just see it my way, we'd have peace. It is the core, it is the kernel of pride. And our text this morning in the Gospel of John is going to speak directly to what happens when that default human condition intersects, collides with Jesus the Christ. And what our passage today in the Gospel of John is going to tell us, I think very profoundly, is very simple. And it's also our big idea for the morning. It's our theme for the entire sermon. It goes like this. I am the problem. Jesus is the solution. Now, I know that most of us would say, yeah, no, I agree with that. I get that. I got it. I get it. But this passage is going to be, I think, very penetrating and piercing at showing us that I really am the problem and that Jesus is the solution. Now, we have been in the Gospel of John this whole fall semester. We're going to pause after this morning. We're going to have a four-week Advent series through the month of December, and then, Lord willing, we'll pick John back up at the 1st of January, and we'll continue on. We're in the Gospel of John, where John's entire thrust is that you would believe so that you will believe, and not just believe unto salvation. Not that you would just believe unto conversion, where you become a Christian, but that you would believe in every aspect of your life for the rest of your life that it would be characterized by belief. That it would be the most real, true thing in your entire existence that you would believe. Now, if you're John and you're trying to convince people to believe, not just one time to get out of hell, but for the rest of your life, what would you do? How would you describe this Jesus on which we are to believe? Well, you would probably do what John does. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John says that you would believe this Jesus, well, he's, he's the logos of God. It's like... All of gravity in the cosmos is walking around, and it's a person. It's him. We know him. We had fish with him. He cooked. He is the very word of God. He is the creative efficacy of God. He is the light of the world in a dark, dark space. He is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Chapter 2, he is creator God. He miraculously transforms water into wine, the waters of religion that divide, into the wine of fellowship and grace. And he clears the temple out and says, no longer do you have to come to an edifice. I am the one in whom you can connect with God for all time. Then he has a conversation with Nicodemus at night to say, hey, religion is over. It's not about a system and a structure and a process. It's a relationship. It's a person. And he goes from Nicodemus, the ruler of the Sanhedrin, the, the learned teacher of Israel, to the opposite end of the spectrum, a woman who's a little bit of a morally questionable character at the well in chapter 4. He says, yeah, even you, there's coming a time when I will give you water and you'll never thirst again. And then he meets a Galilean ruler and, and has that same conversation, which brings us to chapter 5. Jesus heals a person who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Religion has failed him. The best man can produce has failed him. He's helpless. He's hopeless. 
Jesus speaks a word and he is healed on the Sabbath. It infuriates the rulers, which launches Jesus into his own Christology. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is why I've come. This is what I'm going to do. Which takes us into chapter 6, where Jesus starts off feeding miraculously some 20,000-ish people on a hillside in the Golan Heights. He explains that he is the provision of God. He himself is the bread of life. And belief means feasting on Jesus and his finished work. And his words are offensive. And he preaches the crowd down from 20,000 to about 11. He walks on water to demonstrate his sovereignty. All of which then takes us to chapter 7. And chapters 1 through 6 are a preparation for what's going to happen in chapters 7 through 10. Chapters 7 through 10 really and truly could and should be one big honking 200-something verse chapter. Chapter 7 through 10 would be the longest chapter in your New Testament, but by mercy, about 500 years ago, we put in chapter verses and verse, chapter and verse markers to say, hey, well, let's just break it up a little bit. Chapter 7 through 10 all takes place in Jerusalem. And John is going to organize the narrative of chapter 7 very brilliantly. It's going to seem like some disjointed things are happening in chapter 7, but no, John is weaving together a masterpiece. Remember, John's point is that you would believe. And then John's going to give us two categories of what unbelief, what disbelief looks like. They look very, very different on the surface. They play out very, very differently. But what John's going to tell us is the root of unbelief is exactly the same in both instances. So let's look at John chapter 7 now. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to walk back through very quickly, try to unpack it, explain it, and then we'll see if we can apply it. Now, I have to tell you on the front end, with full disclosure, total transparency, <laughs> this is the longest sermon I have ever written in my life. Ever. There's so much here. And so, because I love you, because I'm so codependent, and I want you to come back next week, I'm not going to read my sermon. I'm just not, because we'll be here until, you know, uh, like Christmas. So I'm not going to do that. We're just going to read chapter 7, verses 1 to 31, and then we'll sort of just uh, see what the Lord has for us. So, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read it, and then we'll walk back through. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the, feast, or now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that, it works, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. That is vignette in instance number one, demonstrating, describing disbelief. Now then, verse 10, or verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's for Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is God's word. And it ends with a question. John chapter 7. What is going on? John begins his narrative by saying, after this. Just in the interest of time, let me just tell you, it is six months after the narrative that takes place in chapter 6. Six months later. Now, John doesn't give us any of the details about those six months, just that Jesus is ministering up north in Galilee. It is that six-month period, interestingly, that Matthew and Mark and Luke spend the bulk of their time describing Jesus' ministry. John just sort of yada, yada, yada is right over that six months and just said he's ministering out there, doesn't tell us much about it, but that the, there is a plot by the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. Five separate times in John chapter 7, we're going to hear that the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. So I want to overemphasize that on the front end to say, do you hear that? These are law-abiding, good, moral, decent people, and their reaction to Jesus is, Let's kill him. These are the, the, the center of society, of, of morality and decency, and they pay their taxes, and they don't use bad language, and they, they dress right, and they, they do all the right things, and they confronted with Jesus, and their answer is, let's kill him. And to make sure we get it, John will mention that five different times. Now then, John's going to tell us something pretty important. Chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. John assumes that we know what this is all about. Well, we may or we may not. Let me give a quick summary of what's going on here. There are six feasts of Israel. We get a lot of detail about the feasts of Israel in Leviticus chapter 23. I have a good friend who's a Messianic Jew. He says, you Gentiles, you can't possibly understand the enormity of what Jesus does and says in chapter 7 because you're not Jewish. To which I respond, oh, really? Well, then why did God give us Leviticus 23? I don't have to be Jewish to understand everything. Would it be cool? Meh, maybe. I don't know. But I have been given a lot of detail that I can't understand in Leviticus 23. In other words, yes, it's good to know the context, but we don't need to overemphasize the Jewishness to fully understand God's word. Now, in Leviticus 23, we are given a lot of information about the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, the Feast of Sukkot. It is the final feast. Historian Josephus tells us it's actually the biggest one. It's the biggest party. 
There are three festivals in the spring. There are three festivals in the fall. The three festivals in the fall are the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. Then there's the Day of Atonement. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three feasts come together to form what's called the Ten Days of Awe where it's very somber, very contemplative. You come to temple and you consider the nothing that you have and the abundance of God's provision. That sounds like a great idea. We should look into it. You come to Jerusalem. If you live within 20 miles of Jerusalem, it's required. You don't have an option. You have to come. But Jews from all over the world would come because it's the biggest, funnest feast of all of them. It's the final one. It's the biggest one. It's in October. This is how we know it's been six months from what Jesus does in chapter 6. Now, the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, was also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's a harvest, but not of wheat and barley. That's in the spring. This is when they bring in all of the olives and all of the grapes. You know what you do with grapes? Me too. And so this was the most festive of all festivals. It's party. You get 10 days of awe that are very somber and contemplative. And then for the final five days, Katie bar the door, it's party time. It's the biggest, funnest, most fantastic festival in Israel. And people from all over the world wanted to come and be a part of it. What is the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles? It's to commemorate the Exodus when these people had nothing but God provided for them bountifully. They lived in temporary housing. The entire nation of Israel was camping. God would be in the, temp, in the uh, tabernacle and he would move and so they would have to follow him and they had temporary housing. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate, celebrate the time when they had nothing and God gave them everything. It's a great thing for them to do. But the problem is Leviticus 23 does not say anything about how you're supposed to build your little booth. What are you supposed to do? And so the rabbis came up with all of these rules, of course. All of the people of Jerusalem who lived there, they would put these little booths in their courtyards or they would put them on the flat roofs of their homes or they'd put them in alleyways or in the streets or in the temple courts or any place they could find a spot. But how do you do the booth? Well, the rabbis came up with a full system. It has to have three walls, not four, because four walls would dictate that it's a permanent structure. It has to have three, and it has to lean up against something else. The walls have to have some holes in them that can't be perfect. They let a little bit of the light in so that you can see, this is not my permanent dwelling. I don't really belong here full time. And it has to have a hole in the roof, an opening in the, in the covering, so that when you lie down at night, you can see the stars in the sky while you sleep. But it can't have too big of a hole because the rain will fall in your soup. It's literally what they said. You don't want rain falling in your soup. Never a good idea. And so they had all these rules, how they were supposed to decorate them. They come into Feast of Booths. All the people are waving these three branches together. And they smelled wonderful, these citrus branches. And they would wave them together. And it's a big festive party. Into that setting, we have John chapter 7. Because of that enormous hoopla, Jesus' brothers are going to tell him to do something. Let's pick it up, chapter 7, verses 3 through 10 now. His brothers said to him, leave here in Galilee and go to Judea. <laughs> These are not good brothers. We've already been told just two verses earlier. They're trying to kill him in Judea. And his brothers go, you should totally go there, brah. They, they don't like him. Now listen, fortunately, I have a big brother who's a complete idiot. And so I don't know what it's like to grow up with a sinless, perfect big brother. 
Praise God for my brother Steve. He's completely the... I, mean, I never had to be jealous of him or resent him. He's got all kinds of problems, and I share in them as well. But these guys, his four half-brothers, we know he has at least four half-brothers. We know he has at least two half-sisters. And that Jesus is the only sinless one in the litter. Which means they had all kinds of carnage at their house too. So take a breath. You're not the only ones that struggle with parenting. That home was a train wreck as well, I'm sure. Mary and Joseph struggled just like the rest of us. And these four half-brothers, they're kind of wanting Jesus to like do something. Like go ahead and do something awesome, fully, so that everyone can see it. Or shut up already, you're embarrassing us. We know from the other gospel writers that they were really sort of like put out with him. At one point they called him crazy and tried to physically grab him and drag him back to their house and he wouldn't have it. They saw that he did cool tricks, amazing signs and wonders, and they, they liked that, but they wanted him to do something bigger, bolder, more glitzy and glamorous. Why? Because then if he goes to Jerusalem, at the height of the Feast of Tabernacles, the most crowded day in all Jerusalem for the year, and then Jesus does something awesome, guess what? These four guys get to say, uh-huh, the guy that feeds everybody, the guy that heals sick people, the guy that makes lame people, that's our brother. And there's your tip-off. They're interested in Jesus because they want him to make them a big deal. And Jesus will not have it. They want Jesus to give them glory. They want Jesus to make them famous. They want Jesus to bless them on their terms. And shockingly, Jesus is not interested in their program. His brother said, go there, because, verse 4, no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. We want you to be a big deal, because we want to be a big deal. Then verse 5 makes it clear, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is what disbelief looks like. I want Jesus to do stuff for me. And if he's not going to, I want nothing to do with him. John's giving us a, a, an indicator of what disbelief looks like. By the way, these four half-brothers of Jesus, two of them write a letter in our New Testament. James, the epistle to, of James, is one of Jesus' half-brothers. Jude is one of Jesus' half-brothers. James goes on to be the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. And here, they are not believers. Well, Jesus responds to them, my time has not yet come. It's not the right season. I'm not going to do it publicly for your glory. I'm not interested in that project. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Listen, you've got no problem with the world. You have nothing to fear because you are the world, brah. You're no different. You have the same agenda that the world does. The world hates me. Why? Because I reveal this accomplishment-driven, self-righteousness system of achievement that offends the world so much that when I expose it, they want to kill me for it. That's amazing. So you, why don't you guys go on up to the feast? Go have your little party. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in my glory. I'm not interested in your glory. You guys go on ahead. So verse 9, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But... After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And there's your interpretive key. He goes incognito, not to make a big deal about it so that they can get some glory from it. That's a big interpretive key where John's going, Jesus, did he lie to them? Absolutely not. It wasn't his time to go. We know the Feast of Tabernacles is eight days long. He shows up. 
time in the middle. It wasn't his time to go. It's very possible, we don't know, that even Jesus didn't know that he was going to go or when he was going to go. He was so reliant on the Holy Spirit that when the Spirit said go, he got up and went. But it wasn't his time to go, certainly not in that way that his brothers wanted him to go. So then... Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up also, not publicly, but in private. That's vignette number one. Then ver number two, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Back in chapter five, he had healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. That was many, many, many months earlier, and they're still furious about it. Do you see how deeply ingrained their system of self-reliance is? They're still offended that Jesus upended their system. Not only that, they're beginning to see that Jesus is gaining more influence and he's gaining more popularity and he's threatening their system of status and control. Two great enemies of the faith, we'll find out in chapter 11. They're looking for him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. All this grumbling, murmuring, mumbling, supposed to remind us of the children of Israel in the wilderness, always grumbling about God, always complaining. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And there's instance one. The whole rest of the chapter will be about divisions, divisions, divisions. Every time Jesus is presented, people divide. You cannot stay neutral about Jesus. Ever in the pages of Scripture, nobody just goes, eh, that's fine. They either say, he's a good guy, we should follow him, or he's a bad guy, he's leading the people astray. Those are two different polar opposites. And by the way, according to the Talmud, if you lead people astray, that was an offense worthy of stoning. So this is an accusation that they make. It shows up again. These people are threatened by Jesus, but Jesus always divides. Anyone who says, mm, I'm fine with Jesus, he's just, you know, whatever, and stays neutral, that means they haven't really looked into who this Jesus claims to be. They've heard some things about Jesus, but they don't really know what his claims are. Because if you really know what his claims are, you have to make a decision and you divide. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is great hilarity and irony. Everybody's talking about it, but in hushed voices. We're all talking about it, but nobody wants to be seen as the ones who are talking about Jesus in public. Because if you got found talking about Jesus in public, then the Jewish leaders would kick you out of your synagogue. And that meant your life was functionally over. You couldn't have a job, you couldn't have a house, you couldn't have a business. You're done. So everyone's talking about it, but no one's talking about it openly. So verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. <laughs> I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but this is pretty awesome. Notice his courage, his boldness, his fearlessness. He's gone there privately, incognito. But when it's his time... Nothing will stop him. I want to remind you, this is the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. Israel is all poured into Jerusalem. It is a crush. And into that setting, Jesus marches right into the center of the temple courts and begins teaching in front of crowds that want to kill him. Jesus is not this passive namby-pamby. When it's his time, he is courageous, bold, and fearless. And he begins teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is, the, is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He has no letters, literally. means Maybe it means he can't even read and write. Probably not true. Most Jewish men could read and write at that time. It means he doesn't have a degree. 
So far as we know, he didn't study under Shammai or Hillel or Gamaliel, the three great rabbinic schools of the day. How does this guy talk so brilliantly, so authoritatively? It's like he's one of the rabbis himself. <gasps> See, in those days, if you went about teaching, if you were a rabbi, you never said anything on your own authority. That was considered arrogant and presumptuous. You had to quote the guys that quoted the guys that quoted the guys that studied the scriptures. And that's how you demonstrated how brilliant you were. And you brought acclaim and praise and notoriety to yourself. You said, well, you've heard it said, but I tell you that Hillel says, that Shammai says, that Gamaliel says, that Rabbi Shmuley says, that Rabbi Shmolomo says, and that's how you got fame and fortune. Jesus says, I tell you. And then he just says it. And they go, whoa, how does he know so much? He's arrogant. He's teaching on his own. But he's right. How is that even possible? Jesus answers them. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. I'm not arrogant. I'm not presumptuous. It actually comes from somebody else. Oh, good. Well, who is it? <laughs> he tells them, uh, it's his who sent me, which is a frequent way John's going to refer to God the Father. My teaching comes directly from God the Father. <laughs> not from Rabbi such and such? No. Directly from God. Now, let me just say this. Verses 17 and 18 may be the two most important verses in the entire Gospel of John. Okay? Now that's quite a lead-in, I know. Oftentimes, we read our Bibles as quickly as we can to get through it so that we can say we've done our Bible reading. <whistles> done. But if we do that, we have a tendency to gloss over what I think are some of the most profound theological passages in the whole of the New Testament, what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. So I want to pause a little bit, take a little time, and really unpack this. Because what Jesus says in verse 17 is almost so shocking that it's almost like that can't actually be in the Bible. Like, no way. Surely that's not translated, right? Or there's another way to sort of wordsmith it. No. There's no other way to translate it. Jesus means precisely what he says. And what he says is offensive, it's shocking, it's upsetting, maybe even to some of you in this room. You're not going to like it. Great! Take it up with Jesus. Right? This is what he says in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Let me, let me try to just simplify that a little bit. If your will is to do God's will, then you will know. If your will is to do God's will, then and only then will you know. In other words, we often teach, not intentionally so, but we try to say the way to know God is to know Him through His Word. And certainly, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing. That's true. But there's something even before that. Jesus Himself says, the only way you can know God's word and his teaching is if your will is like God's will. Well, hold on a second. I, I, I can't change my own will. I, I have a will that I was born with. Something else has to happen. Jesus says, ding, 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 ding. That's exactly right. He's already told us several times, like five times in chapter six, that nobody can come unless the Father draws him. And when the Father draws them, I will never drive them away, Jesus says. The key to understanding God's word is having God's will. And the only way you get God's will is by a supernatural transforming grace that is given by the Father. In other words, if this is true, and it's true, then I can take zero credit for my own salvation. Zero. I get no glory for it. I get no acclaim, no, boy, I really am the smartest kid in VBS. 
and I made the decision first, so I got the graham crackers earlier and the red punch, and I'm the smartest kid in the room. And perhaps many of us still feel like I figured this out, and if everybody in hell was as smart as me, there wouldn't be anybody in hell. Not what Jesus says. You have to have a new will to understand God's word. It's offensive. It's upsetting, which means you can take zero credit for your right standing before God. That completely upends everything that the Jewish people stood for. And here he is in the crush of the Feast of Tabernacles saying, you get no credit for anything that you're doing. Nothing. And they want to kill him. You get it. Now, it's astonishing what Jesus says. The way to understand God's word is to have a new will. And the way to have a new will is to receive God's transforming grace supernaturally. You get no credit for it. God gets all the credit for it. Just to make sure we get that, he drives it home even deeper in verse 18. He says in verse 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is making a tremendous statement. A true believer is one who is not interested in his own glory or fame or praise or acclaim. That's how you know if someone's true. And Jesus says, look here. I'm not here for my own glory. All of you are here for your own glory. My brothers were there for their own glory. Ah, we're beginning to see the root and the theme and the commonality and the pattern. What does disbelief, unbelief look like? It is self-reliance. It is the pursuit of glory, fame, accreditation, and glory to myself. And Jesus says, no, this is how you know a person is true. Are they more interested in God's glory or are they more interested in their own glory? Are they more interested in having nice things said about them or nice things said about God? I'm just gonna be quiet for a little bit and let that settle in on everybody. Because I, ah, that hurts. Are we more interested in nice things being said about God or nice things being said about me? I know how I answer that. Now, before we all go, well, then, whoa, then none of us are true. Easy, easy. It's the already and the not yet. We all still struggle with this day by day. But wait, there's more. Just to make sure they really step in the bear trap and lose both legs, Jesus now loads up with one of the most brilliant arguments ever, ever spoken. Verses 19 to 24. I'm going to be super brief on this, but it's so rich. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Moses, Moses, he's your guy, right? You love the law of Moses. It's your favorite. Well, you're all breaking it. You're all breaking it. You, you think that the way to get to God is by keeping the law? Well, surprise! You're all breaking it because you want to kill me. And I'm pretty sure that's against the law. Right? You, you, you've taken the law of Moses, which, by the way, was always intended to demonstrate, to reveal, to project the moral code of heaven, the righteousness of God himself. That's what the law is. And they took it and they distilled it down to little micro steps. In other words, they took the law of Moses, which was intended to reveal God, and they tried to use it to make God user-friendly. And God will have nothing to do with it. You don't take the law of God, which projects the righteousness of God, and turn it into a system that you do stuff so that you get praise and glory. By the way, it sounds an awful lot like 20th century American Christianity, if we're not careful. Where we do a bunch of stuff so that everyone can say, look how good and moral and decent I am. God says, I'm not interested. That's you chasing your own glory. I will not amplify that program. 
Moses, Moses, he's your guy, right? You all want to keep the law, right? You all think you keep the law. Yes, we sure do. Well, then why do you want to kill me? And they say, kill you? You have a demon. He says, uh, they said, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? We've already been told several times that they're all trying to kill him. And then right after this, they're trying to kill him. Jesus doesn't even qualify the question. He moves right by it. He does not flinch. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. One thing, he's referring back to healing the paralyzed man in chapter five because he did it on the Sabbath and they're all still wigged out about it. So Jesus now tightens his grip. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, but it wasn't for Moses. It's from the fathers. He just drops a bomb. You all love Moses. Moses, he's your guy because he gave you a to-do list. But circumcision is actually before Moses. It's actually way back in Genesis 17 with Abraham. It predates the law. You're missing the point. You are obsessing on the letter. You've missed the spirit. You're after the rule. You've missed the relationship, he says. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? This is what Jesus is saying. I healed the guy on the Sabbath. You, Jews, you circumcise on the Sabbath, even though the, the law says don't circumcise on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. You guys do it. Why? Because the law also says you must circumcise on the eighth day. So what happens if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath? Uh-oh, we're stuck. What do we do? And so they came up with this whole laundry list of things that you could do to go ahead and circumcise on the Sabbath. Even though circumcision was before the law. And Jesus goes, you're worried about... You do one little thing on the Sabbath. I made an entire person well. It's more than. And this makes you mad so much that you want to kill me? And now he explains why this is such a big deal. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What he's going to tell him is, you've missed the whole point. You think you have the law, and therefore you know God. I'm telling you, you don't know God. You don't have God. Now that's an incredible megaton impact of an indictment. Well, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Like they just said, wait, wait, no one's trying to kill you. Wait, aren't they trying to kill you? This is the same group of people. What's happening is Jesus is in the crush of people in temple courts, and finally someone steps back and goes, Hey, wait a second. He's just standing here. Isn't that the guy that everyone's trying to kill? Why is nobody doing anything? Verse 26, And here he is, speaking openly that they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Are the leaders beginning to believe? Are they starting to come around, they ask? Verse 27, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What? Is that true? Absolutely not. The Old Testament was full of passages saying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and all these things. But a legend had emerged in Israel by this time that said the Messiah would just sort of show up. That nobody would know anything about him. He would be in Israel, but no one would know anything about his identity. He'd be completely hidden and obscure. And suddenly he would just show up and go, I'm the Messiah and I don't have a hometown. I'm here now. And that's what they began to believe. So they start saying this. Jesus, either overhearing them or by supernatural knowledge, responds. It says in verse 28, he proclaimed. It means he shouted loudly. I'll put it in East Texas. He hollered in the center of the temple confines as he taught. You know me and you know where I come from, but you don't know all that you think you know. In fact, you know less than you think you know. I've not come from my own accord. 
or my own mission. He who sent me, God the Father, is true, and him, <gasps> boom, you do not know. Let me remind you, for the eighth time, Jesus is standing in the temple courts, the center of Judaism in the world, at the most crowded time. He goes, oh, by the way, all of you here, none of you know him. I know him because I come from him. Not one of you here knows him. Why? Because not one of you has a new will. Why? Because all of you here are here for your own glory and praise and fame and acclamation, and I'll have none of it. That's a pretty staggering indictment. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they're seeking to arrest him, you think? They don't like this at all. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. See, God is sovereign in the entire process. I don't know how Jesus escapes this. It's, it's impossible. And yet God is sovereign over the whole deal. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Six months from this moment, on the Day of Atonement, I'm sorry, uh, Passover, the following spring in six months, Jesus will be lifted up on a cross and die. That will be his hour. And he will announce it in John 12. My hour has come. But until that time, he's not about his own business ever. He's only ever about doing the will of his father. So they can't even lay a hand on him. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Does that sound like really convinced, persevering faith? I guess he'll do. I mean, when the real Christ comes, you think he's going to do more tricks than him? Nah, probably not. I guess I'll go with him. And John's telling us something. That's not persevering long-term faith. Yeah, they believed that he was probably something special, but they didn't believe all the way. Just like his brothers, just like the crowds, they're interested in their own glory, fame, and praise. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks more on this. We're not going to. So let me just give you three very quick summary implications of how I think this passage becomes portable. Just very quickly, you can probably draw a whole lot more than I did, but just to sort of make these click together, here's how I would summarize and synthesize this passage. First implication goes like this. Pride is the opposite of faith. Pride is the opposite of faith. I think that's why John puts these two passages together. The disbelief of the brothers, the disbelief of the crowds. They may look totally different on the surface, but underneath, underneath both groups are driven by the exact same issue, and it's pride. They want notoriety. They want glory into themselves and unto themselves. Now, when I say pride, that's one of those words that can mean everything and therefore nothing. So let me define and refine what I mean when I say pride. I don't merely mean arrogance or cockiness or boastful bragging, not that kind of pride. I mean the pride that is self-reliance. I mean the pride that means um, essentially trusting in myself for everything that I can solve my own problems. And it bubbles up and it evidences itself when I look at everyone around me and I, I indict them for being wrong and for not thinking like I think. Because I'm right and they're all wrong. I have the answer. I have the solution in myself. And if y'all would just get on board, we could all finally get along and the world would be a better place. It's the heart of pride. But faith, saving faith, is recognizing that my human problem is unsolvable by me and that I need a divine solution. It means I have to look at myself accurately and honestly and realize that I am my own greatest enemy and I need someone else from the outside of me to rescue me from myself. So then, what does faith or belief 
practically and actually look like. Implication number two goes like this. Belief is wanting God's glory more than my glory. Gulp. Belief is wanting God's glory more than my glory. I admit it. This is probably my least favorite point of application in the history of my preaching. Because it's the most convicting. Like, do I really want God to be magnified or do I kind of want me to be magnified? I mean, I like it when people say nice things about me or to me. I, I, I like it. It's, it's way better than when people say things about how lousy I am, even though I kind of know that that part's true. It doesn't feel very good. I like to feel good. I don't like to feel bad. People saying nice things feels good. Now, this is perhaps one of the most dangerous things for a preacher or a pastor, because here we stand on an elevated platform under lights, trying to convince everybody that we've got it all figured out and that we're living good lives, when we know that we're a dumpster fire with shoes. Okay? Like, I know this. Spend any time with my elders, they'll be like, oh yeah, we keep notes. Here, let me show you. Here we go. I know that, but it is so tempting, so dangerously compelling to try to do things for my own acclaim, for my own praise. For my, now what's going to happen is I'm going to say, hey, how, how, how was it, George? How was it? Mm, they're terrible. You can still say nice things to me. It's okay. But it is a dangerous thing for all of us when we begin to manufacture our surroundings and our environment so that people will say nice things about us. We're all guilty of it. But long-term saving faith in the same direction has more concern for God's glory than for my own. And then Jesus says, that's the mark of a true person. You probably know people like this, although not very many, who are so centered, all they care about is God's glory. Now, they don't walk around saying that. You can just tell. They don't talk about themselves. They ask you questions. They're not trying to build an empire of how awesome they are. A true person really just recognizes that they have nothing of their own and all of their life is a receipt from the bounty and the provision of God. And then that person becomes a true person and has actual peace and confidence that comes from an identity in what God has done, not in what they're trying to do. Now for some of you, I just knocked off your therapy bill for next year by like 85%. You can tithe that. We're totally happy with that. A true person is one who does not live for their own glory, acclaim, praise, and fame, but for God's. And I'll tell you, I struggle with this daily, hour by, which by the way is a great reminder of how important it is that we do gather together in worship and in fellowship because if I'm just by myself at home or occasionally attending bedside Baptist in the morning when I hit the snooze button then I lose sight of the glory of God and I begin to settle for my own. Moments moments after I'm together with you I begin to think about myself so we need the gathering of the fellowship brethren and sistren it's crucial or we will begin to follow our own glory in no time and sin has us by the throat. Third point, to know God, we need a new want to. It's a little Eric way of saying a new will. To truly know God, we need a new want to. Now that's not instinctively human, by the way. In fact, it requires a miraculous change because every default impulse in a fallen human heart is toward the self. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to take Jesus' words here and he's really going to develop it in the book of Ephesians. He's going to say that we are by nature objects of wrath. We are spiritually dead. Not just dead, but dead, dead. We cannot move toward God on our own, Paul will say. We are objects of wrath. But by grace, he transforms us into trophies of his grace. 
he'll develop that even further in Philippians and say that we have been given a new will to act. That's the gospel. We've actually been given a new will. We come into this world and the disposition of our will is towards evil. But God does something and he tips the scales towards good to where increasingly what I ought to do becomes synonymous with what I want to do. We have to have a new will. And when we have a new will, then the things of God and his word come alive and they're vibrant 3D and HD. But until that time, it's black letters on a white page. We need a new want to. That's the gospel. Our greatest need has been offered freely by the God that our need has so profoundly offended. He offers it freely. The judge of the cosmos says, here, I give it to you free. You can't earn it. And if you could earn it, you would take credit for it. But you can't. And then, watch this. Then I, God says, will glorify you. I will lift you and seat you in the heavenlies. Because I will do that. That's the kind of God I am. You want to be that kind of God, but you're not. I am, and I will give it to you by grace. So I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but I know that what you think about when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And this passage, John 7, we could spend a whole lot more time, but we're not, but it, it paints a glorious portrait of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. So I pray the Spirit of God moves your heart and your mind to, to think more clearly, to feel more deeply about this Jesus and to see yourself truly and that your faith and my faith will increase. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're still trying to do a bunch of stuff to help everyone see how good and moral you are, but you don't actually know Jesus, I pray this morning that the Spirit of God will move and give you a new will. And for the rest of us who have been believers for a very long time, I pray that you will also continue to believe, that you will fall more in love with Jesus, that as a result of this passage, he will be more believable, he will be more beautiful, and that you will not seek your own glory and fame and acclaim, but that of the Father, and then you will be a true person and a light to this community. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And God, I pray this morning if there is someone here who doesn't know you, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that you would give them a new will to, to act, that they would want what you want, that they would think what you think, that they would see what you see. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that you would intensify our belief and our faith that we would not seek our own glory, but that we would be true sons and daughters of you, our Father. That we would be lights in this dark community and that we would stop looking around saying, hey, this is what's wrong, that's what's wrong, Father, that we would recognize humbly, yieldedly, submittedly that we are the problem, but Jesus is our solution. God, thank you for this word. We pray that it'll continue to stir in our hearts. And I pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us this last Sunday, November. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we'll be dismissed. There are Advent booklets in the foyer. Don't forget those. Benediction from Hebrews chapter 13 goes like this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.